Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Tuesday, the 28th of March. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer, and welcome to our weekly Beyond Markets update. There are a few sectors in the economy people care a lot about. Take energy, for example. When the price of oil goes up a lot, it creates inflation. Or take property. People care about that because for most people, it's their largest asset. But if there's one sector that people really get antsy about when they hear there's something weird, something unexpected going on, it's the banking sector because rightly or wrongly, they think banks are to the economy what the heart is to the body. Without the heart, blood couldn't circulate throughout the body and without banks, money can't get to where it's needed in the economy. Well, as we all know, there's been plenty of weird and unexpected goings on in the banking sector recently. Not here in Asia, mind you, our banks are fine. I'm talking about the United States and Europe. The epicenter of the storm, Silicon Valley Bank, was taken over last night by another bank named First Citizens Bank Shares. First Citizens is paying zero for Silicon Valley Bank, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is giving it protection for losses in excess of $5 billion on the loan book. The press release does say that First Citizens is assuming, quote, certain other liabilities of Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, end of quote. So it's not exactly paying zero after all. Still, the assets it's acquiring must be coming at such a big discount that the market thinks this is a big net positive for them. First Citizens' share price rose 53% after the announcement. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is a reminder that only the large American banks are subject to regular stress tests and tight regulations Small banks have no less than $2 trillion of commercial real estate loans, or 44% of their loan book, mind you. That compares to 13% of the large bank's loan book in commercial real estate, and that could be a problem. One of the fascinating things about markets is the so-called secondary and tertiary effect. When COVID happened and we were all told to work from home, well, a lot of people liked working from home so much that they just kept on doing it even up until today. So according to Castle Systems, the largest provider of office access control services in the United States, occupancy in office buildings in the 10 largest cities is still only 50%. Everyone I know in North America goes to the office at most just twice a week, even today, three years after the pandemic started. And I can understand why. They live in nice big bungalows. They have plenty of space for a home office. They often have long commutes to work too. And given how tight the labor market is, it's hard for companies to get them to come back. Some companies don't seem to want them to come back. They're downsizing their office space, getting employees to hot desk when they come to work. That means when you don't have an assigned space, but you sit down at whichever workspace is empty and plug in your company-issued laptop. If this really is a trend, then, no pun intended, office space needs a new lease on life. There are some good ideas out there, like converting office space into apartments, but it'll take time, and meanwhile this year, some $270 billion in commercial mortgages held by banks are set to expire. That figure rises to $1.4 trillion over the next five years. So it still feels a little precarious, 
a little, dare I say, like things felt after the New York Fed and then J.P. Morgan intervened in Bear Stearns back in March 2008. That was just a prelude, as we all know in retrospect, for the really big crisis that came later that year. And today, too, everyone knows there's probably more out there if these small banks with enormous commercial real estate exposure have problems. The flip side of that is that everybody also knows the Federal Reserve and the government will be desperate to avoid another Bear Stearns. At least that's what they think they know, because neither the Federal Reserve nor the government are looking desperate. Of course, they don't want to look desperate. So we have to hope that behind their brave facade, the Fed is bluffing. When it said, as Chairman Jerome Powell did last week, and I'll quote him here, participants don't see rate cuts this year. They just don't. I would just say, as always, the path of the economy is uncertain and policy is going to reflect what actually happens rather than what we write down in our summary of economic projections. But rate cuts this year are not our baseline expectation. End of quote. Yesterday, Wharton School professor Jeremy Siegel appeared on CNBC TV. He said, I'm just wondering, Fed Chairman Powell's not even thinking about lowering interest rates given what I think the economy's facing under Fed policy. It's a completely wrong approach. He added he thinks the Fed has been an overkill on inflation, which is absolutely under control according to him. Yes, we're going to get a little bit more inflation in the services side, but 60 to 70% of the economy is in deflation at the present time, Professor Siegel said. Well, Professor Siegel may be worried the Fed won't cut rates, but the market doesn't seem to be. Fed fund futures are pricing the Fed fund rate at 3.9% in January next year, 110 basis points lower than where it is today. Meanwhile, other central banks seem to be even more hawkish than the Fed. Eurozone inflation will be released on Friday. If the core inflation rate is 5.7%, as the consensus expects, it'll be higher than core inflation in the United States, and the market could reprice its rate hike expectations in Europe at the same time as it sees the top of the cycle in the United States. So we think the dollar can continue to weaken, which is good for risk assets, as long as there really isn't a renewed banking crisis. That's the wild card. And it's not a debate about the large banks that are stress-tested, as I said. It's about the small banks that could either opt out or weren't included in stress tests, where the value of the balance sheets remains in question. We just don't know how their portfolios will behave if commercial real estate prices go down a lot or if their customers can't pay back their loans. There are three ways the problem can get larger. First, if someone has to sell assets at fire sale prices, it depresses prices for the rest and forces other banks to sell. Second, if there's more deposit flight. And third, the underlying macro issue of an important sector like commercial real estate could spread into the broader economy. Let's see what happens. One thing that is different between now and 2008 is that the Federal Reserve and Treasury Department didn't institute the Troubled Asset Relief Program until six months after Bear Stearns collapsed. This time, they've instituted the bank term funding program that allows banks to refinance at the Federal Reserve without taking a haircut on March 12th, just two days after the bank run on Silicon Valley Bank. Still, our head of fixed income research, Marcus Allensbach, isn't sure all the instruments necessary to prevent another problem are in place. He points out specifically that a deposit guarantee like the Retail Deposit Guarantee Scheme that ran between October 2008 
and October 2010 is not in place today. The Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 rules it out, and Treasury Secretary Yellen said she's not ready to change the law. Instead, they'll only support banks that are in receivership. It's a political issue, of course. Wyoming Senator Cynthia Loomis said to Secretary Yellen last week, and I'll quote her, for banks that in my state have at least two-thirds of the bank's deposits insured, taking the next leap to consider insuring every deposit, that's probably a step too far for me. End of quote. So let's see if the market will be satisfied with what's been done so far, or if it thinks support for small banks is still not enough, given the potential problems in commercial real estate. To reiterate, this is not a big bank problem, although it could become one. In its monthly survey of fund managers, Bank of America asks the question, what do you think the biggest risk right now is? With the brief exception of the two months after Russia invaded Ukraine, Inflation was the number one answer for the last two years, but this month that switched to systemic credit event. If it's any consolation, the Fed did in its statement last week sound, for the first time in quite some time, concerned for the economy. It said, and I'll quote it here, recent developments are likely to result in tighter credit conditions for households and businesses and to weigh on economic activity, hiring, and inflation. The extent of these effects is uncertain. End of quote. And tighter credit conditions were referenced several times by Chairman Powell in his meeting with the press. He said it was possible banking turmoil would further tighten conditions, but estimates of just how much any credit contraction would reduce hiring, economic activity, and inflation were, quote, rule of thumb guesswork at almost at this point, but it could easily have a significant macroeconomic effect, end of quote. So will there be a recession in light of what's just happened? Our CIO Yves Bonzon said that signals from the best economist we know, the Standard & Poor's 500 index itself, point to a resilient system. The S&P has returned 4% year-to-date. If we compare that to 2008, by the time J.P. Morgan bought Bear Stearns back on March 16, 2008, the S&P was already down 13%. Eve also says, when the boat is empty, it's hard to sink. In other words, people simply aren't positioned for risk. And that does appear to be the case. We've seen this massive collapse in yields, with the policy rate-sensitive two-year Treasury yield down 20% from early March, its largest percent decline since October 1987. We know from what happened last year that technology stocks don't like higher interest rates because the long-term earnings power that makes them stand out relative to the rest of the crowd gets less valuable when they're discounted at higher interest rates. So the opposite is also true. When rates go down, they become more appealing, and that's why the big technology stocks, as measured by the NYSE FANG index, are up a whopping 32% so far this year. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. I wish you a great week ahead, and we'll speak with you again next week. Goodbye. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favorite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.